Hello, and thank you, first of all, for tuning into this first episode podcast ever I've ever done in my life. Uh, welcome to Third Party Radio. Third party radio is basically, in its core, uh, a solution-based program uh, to to help us get through these uh, almost impossible times. Uh, a lot of people know how to complain. We all know what we don't like. So I want to try my very best assistis to be a voice of solution, a voice of uh, possibilities and, uh, and a voice of rationality as well. Third party is originated uh, by separating oneself from the main political parties. So in the United States, uh, and third party can apply anywhere in the world. In the United States, we have the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, well, the Republican Party has clearly run astray in some pretty extreme ways. I know there's some really good Republicans out there as well, you know, that are just as repulsed and disgusted about what's going on in the White House as anybody is. Um, and then there's the Democrats. Um, you know, uh, I, they're politicians too, you know. What can I say? I, I don't know. Career politicians is kind of a weird thing. I mean, I kind of get it because you learn the game and that way you become a better politician. And I know there's great politicians out there that actually do care about the people. I would say Bernie Sanders for sure falls in that category. Um, so, you know, but both of them, uh, you know, I don't know. They're in this quagmire where nothing is getting done in a bar in a bipartisan way. And the only people that are suffering are us. I mean, can you imagine hiring somebody that never did their job and you were just like, well, they got three more years, you know, it'll be all right. Okay, I guess. So anyway, so the third party is basically just concentrating on solutions. And I, I think I've... I have been working on ways and devising ways to actually uh, separate our own local communities from from the government uh, because they're, for the most part, a total and utter failure. Uh, we are living in a failing state, people. And good. I mean, there's things that are getting done. You know, there's, um, you know, the protests are amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm so just... So thankful for all the people that went out there and did that. Uh, it's it's incredible. And I think that some real change might actually come from this. Um, so that's good. But okay, we got our, our gloves off and everybody's putting up the good fight. But before the killing of George Floyd and the protests and the rioting, we were in a pandemic that basically destroyed the capitalist free market around the world overnight. 
And since then, uh, we're reaching unemployment levels uh, not seen since the Great Depression. It's probably safe to say that we're going to far surpass Great Depression unemployment. And that's probably just because we have more people. Uh, regardless, though, um, it's going to be chaotic if we don't start finding a solution like yesterday. We need to turn the world upside down. What I'm going to propose, uh, and, and basically the third party is also just going to be kind of a, a discussion, just kind of a free flow from myself, by the way. I guess I didn't introduce myself. I'm Josh Gorell. One of the things amongst many that I'll be discussing in this first episode is a social network owned by the users. Yeah, radical, huh? A social network owned by you. You are Facebook. You are Instagram. You are Twitter. You are all of these. Okay. So they make money off of your information. It's like you're going to mine gold or coal or something else because you are a natural resource. You're actually worth a lot more because advertising makes more, I think, than just trees and coal and steel. I don't know that as a fact, though. Um, but yeah, you should be making a basic income. You don't need a handout in the form of a universal fucking income. You're already earning it. It's getting stolen from you. Now, don't get me wrong. Those social networks and all that stuff that they built is groovy. But the power of them and the size of them and, and uh, just the sheer power, it's, just, it's, an, it's insane uh, because it should be your network. You should be voting on who you want on that network and who you don't want on that network. And that's actually kind of just a direct correlation to, to who's doing the bad things and who's doing the good things. And uh, if the numbers speak, then the numbers speak. Now, one of the big problems that has faced that kind of a situation is that, yeah, you can now get bots and fake users, right? Uh, that could swarm that network and uh, topple any votes and have all the power. Well, I don't know if you've heard of a, a little thing called a distributed ledger technology, otherwise known as the blockchain, the thing that Bitcoin resides on. Now, that's just the way most people know it, but it's actually a distributed ledger technology. Uh, you've got Ethereum. Um, you know, there's, there's other networks that have other things going on that work better in certain ways. Like Ethereum uses a thing called a smart contract. And a smart contract is something that enables a command to attach itself to what you could call a token or a Bitcoin. So anyway, not to get overtly complicated about all that, but I will be talking about that stuff often because once they figure that out, the world's going to change. The thing about blockchain, one of my favorite quotes I've heard, it's not that you don't trust who you're doing business with. 
It's that you don't have to trust who you're doing business with. And that's the essence of a distributed ledger. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, the biggest, strongest record system ever invented for provenance and certification. Now, just think about attaching your identification to one of those blockchains, right? So you actually have a strong encryption that is your like public face. Uh, and um, it verifies that it's you. You don't just go get your security tokenized self as an identification. You have to actually physically show up in a civic place designated to onboard you onto the system. So a bot or a doubling is very unlikely. And that's what will secure the network with real people. And once you start gaining value on your own stuff, in fact, you can pick advertising blocks. Uh, it's your choice. You want to flaunt Coca-Cola and McDonald's all day long and make money at it? Why not? Get yourself a McDonald's hat. I mean, fuck, maybe we're all going to become a NASCAR. <laughs> Just slap it all over, dude. Because... I don't know how people are going to make money, especially with this government. Forget about Republicans, Democrats too. I mean, who amongst those people have a radical solution that's actually going to work? I don't know. But people haven't started starving yet, but I know they're going hungry. And that's when things start to radically change. But we can change them in a peaceful manner. Just persevere and chip away in all the right ways. Get your network. Zuckerberg, time to hand over the keys, man. You remember two uh, other social networks, uh, Friendster and MySpace. I know there's a lot of people. Well, it's not a lot of people because I doubt a lot of people are actually listening to this. But uh, I know there's a lot of people out there who don't know what Friendster and MySpace is. But it's basically the beginnings of the social network that you all exist on today called Facebook. Zuckerberg needs to just hand over the keys to the castle. It's got to be owned by everybody on it. There is now finally payment solutions that has caught up with time to allow for micropayments, you can be sleeping and making money because people are looking at and liking your profile pictures and advertisers are liking that everybody's liking everything. Think about it. Don't be a whore for Zuckerberg and sell your ass out and make a kid $10 billion a year. You make $10 billion a year. Could a user-owned social network actually give everybody the universal income they need? Not a handout earned. You're already earning it. You're just not making the money off of it. And that's a damn shame. The code's got to be out there. I mean, there is so much code on GitHub. I mean, people are just slapping stuff together because why wouldn't you? It's a cut and paste. You take good stuff and you build off of it. That's why free source is out there. These people trying to profit off, I mean, you know, if you look at some of these great programs and what computer technology has done for civilization, it's amazing. And the power to create that stuff is, is godlike. But because it's godlike, I, it belongs to the globe. I mean, everyone can just own a little bit. They don't need to 
keep buying houses and boats and cars and fly around in their own private plane. I mean, that's consumption that's equal to probably 100,000 people, if not more. And consumption is what needs to slow down. But more on that later. That's my uh, rant about the uh, user-owned social network. Um, I'm going to start to consider this a call. If anybody would like to get involved, uh, I'm going to start talking to whoever. It can't be difficult to create another Facebook if if Zuckerberg doesn't want to like hand over stuff, but he won't because it's a publicly owned company, ironically, by a, a few people. But that's that. Right. Another solution. I like, I like solutions. I hope they're solutions. Maybe not to some of the people that would quote unquote lose from some of these solutions, but I consider them solutions. Sports teams, professional sports teams. All right. Why don't the inhabitants of the cities where the sports teams play make the money off the profits. You don't change anything. General manager, everybody that's there that makes those teams amazing, they stay. Nothing changes. Nothing. Let the chefs who know how to cook in the kitchen, they do their thing. But what does change is the billionaire with his little play toy, his sports team, making buckets of money, just buckets. I mean, think about it. First of all, what kind of just super fan would that create? Everybody, I think sports would catapult into something that would see a, a, you know, a doubling of people watching. I mean, think about owning a little bit of that team playing tonight down the down the street. Like they win, you win. And not just here. You win on the ticket sales. Yep, you get all that. You get the local pride. But the marketing and the merchandising. You sell an LA Dodger jersey to someone in France and you over here in LA, all of you, Poorest to the rich, make their cut. And think about that, that super fan just, oh my goodness. I mean, sports would just be amazing. I mean, we've seen, we've seen great players like Michael Jordan, obviously there in the elixir right now. Uh, but we haven't seen the, the joy of a super fan, like what a super fan can bring to the players which in turn will make the players even better. I mean, think about it. You're just so psyched on seeing them do well and so supportive because, again, it's more than just going and watching your team. It is literally your team. Again, nothing changes. 
general managing office, everything, nothing changes, just the owner. How do you do this? Well, you are in a position right now to do exactly this because they're on their knees. Now, sports owners, I'm sorry, I, you know, I don't mean to, to pick on you. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're all good people, you know, I don't know. Um, you're just going for the dream and you're pulling it off. I mean, you're, you're, you know, that dream, that reality has ended no longer is sustainable to the world order. So, you know, it's fine though. You got a lot of money, man. You can still hold on to some part of the team, obviously, if if you live in the city, of course. Uh, but yeah, so you boycott it until they give it up. Right now, they're barely going to survive. If you don't watch the teams play and you don't support any of the stadiums that open up until those owners hand over the team to the city and sets up a wealth fund for all the residents. Now, how does that happen without duplicating people and having robots just take this money? Well, that goes back to the distributed ledger identification system, uh, which I'll be talking I'll be talking later on uh, with Philip Shoemaker, who is the executive director of Identity.com, a, a partnership with Civic, uh, which is a blockchain token based on the Ethereum network. Um, so yeah, a blockchain ID will guarantee again you you. you onboard onto that system at at a, a place as a live person that's how you get your token set up that's how you get onto the network and you're 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 basically your own bitcoin you're your own security token you you are a value oh my god look at that just by the nature of blockchain distributed ledger technology an identification system attaches a digital value to you you're a quantified something somewhere there you go. The blockchain cares about you, baby. Um, but yeah, uh, take over the teams. Uh, you know, think about that final game. 20 seconds to go. You're the home team. This is it. You're down by three. 20 seconds to go. Just think about the, how tense and dramatic that scenario can be as an owner and a fan and then think about the players the players are they're like pressure and elated joy with the outcome of 50 50 win or lose but they sink that shot and you know the city gets another two million dollars beyond just your dividends, you know, in your own pocket, but you know, it goes into the city, which, you know, right now the cities don't have any money either because nobody's working, nobody's doing consuming and nobody's spending and there's no taxes going on. So as you're getting poor, the city's getting poor. Another reason to start working on what I'm proposing immediately. The time is now. Lots of people have free time. Put it towards something. This could grow fast and exponentially. But, you know, 
they win, they get the money. I mean, whatever an owner of one of these teams would get, it just gets distributed to the network of people in the city. And then a certain part of it goes directly into the city coffers, roads, homeless, just everything. Funding it, basically. Funding it quickly. And here's the thing. You talk about, oh my God, socialism. Ew. You know, This is a form of socialism, okay? Get it. Check it, okay? You and your family go and buy tickets to see the LA Dodgers. You have your jerseys. Your son and your daughter love their jerseys as well, and their hats, and their wristbands, and everybody's eating there. Well, this is what socialism looks like, or what I like to call social capitalism, because you are the social in the capitalism. Okay, so you go to the game and you spend the money, but guess what? You're getting a discount because a part of that is in a way going back to you. And it's also a part of your value portfolio. It gives you a reason to stay in Los Angeles. It gives you a reason to make the place a better place and stick it out because you've got a a sports team, hell, You've got the Lakers, the Clippers, the Dodgers, the Rams, the Kings. Okay. Universal income. This isn't a handout. It's earnable by just doing what you already do. You just need to flip the script. And you can. And you should. Plain and simple. All right. So here's the doozy. This one's close to my heart. I, uh, a couple of years ago, when I came back from Switzerland... The blockchain was um, had grown up. Not that it was something I, not that it was something that I paid too much attention to. I, I when I saw Bitcoin come out back in 2010, I believe it was, I thought, wow, you know, everything that was behind that was like amazing to me. Um, and everyone's like, oh, it's anarchy. It's going against the system. Well, yeah, look at the system. Look where you are. Check it out. You're fucked. Great system. Bitcoin. Bitcoin was an amazing notion. Now, I didn't invest in it, um, sadly. <laughs> but when I came back, I, I noticed that things had changed. I, I always have kept up on technological advancements in certain publications. And uh, I saw a big growth spurt that was beyond the cryptocurrency, by the way, people. I'm not like into that money aspect of it. There's a reason why they're doing that because it's, it is a gold rush. And if you stake Bitcoin as your digital gold, it will support all the other networks that can be created. So it acts as a gold standard in the digital realm, basically. Um, 
But all these other networks like Ethereum, uh, they started to apply these things called smart contracts and um, gave these things automation. Uh, don't get all scared, but they, they became an artificial intelligence, a very bare and plain artificial intelligence, but enough to, to operate this and uh, make it work uh, in different ways uh, to uh, apply different applications uh, over it, to overlay onto that net. So, uh, that network. So my idea, uh, I was just instantly drawn to it. I was thinking about wanting to be that entrepreneur that comes up with the next greatest thing. Um, attracted really to the, uh, societal benefits that can be achieved through, uh, the digital realm, as opposed to taking advantage of people and making huge profits and buying big houses and boats and flying in airplanes that you own and all that good stuff. Um, watch 10 years from now, I got my own private jet. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so what I had proposed was a social economic support system devoid of any government interference. Basically what it is, I'll just tell a story. Okay. That, that usually tells it the best, right? So Jimmy, Jimmy lives in Santa Monica, California. Jimmy and all his neighbors are really down on their luck. Uh, real people down the street, everybody knows somebody at this point, things are really bad and there's really no more money coming from the government because the system hasn't been feeding itself, so there's no money in government. And everybody's freaking out, literally. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. We should start working on this, by the way, ASAP. So Jimmy, like everyone else in Santa Monica, let's say a city of 100,000 people for easy math, Jimmy, like all other 100,000 residents of Santa Monica, now this counts babies, one years old, one day old, um, I think a, a large family should benefit from having those family members in this, um, in this system. So everybody puts in $2, $2. And every month that $200,000 is sitting there and it gets split. A hundred thousand of it is going to go to one of the hundred thousand people in Santa Monica they're going to get $100,000, boom. And going forward for that entire year, that winner will know, winner, okay, so that's what people say, oh, it's a lottery. I'll get to that. I like to call it a notary. Um, so the person gets the money. Now, here's the thing. It is a digital currency, again, associated with your blockchain identification system. And this all is supporting this whole network, whether it's the social network you're on and also in conjunction with the community you live in. Now, there's restrictions on this money that you obtain as a resident. Jimmy got it this month. Wow, Jimmy, way to go. Jimmy's 19. Jimmy can do a couple of things. First and foremost, he must spend that money in the community in Santa Monica. Okay. Uh, but there's ways to export that value, but it's in ways that benefits the community, right? So you can pay down a mortgage. You can put down on a house. 
uh, that would le- make the money leave into whoever owns that property. And uh, you can use it for college if you're going out of state because going out of state or going to any college and then coming back to the community, community if you desire, is only going to make the community a better place. You see, this is why education is important. Uh, so you're, you can use it for that. You can use a, a tiny amount, say fifteen to twenty thousand dollars of that, to uh, go travel anywhere in the world. Again, major value to experience. Major value to experience. You know, going on a European travel with fifteen or twenty grand is, as a nineteen-year-old Jimmy is, that has never been even out of California, and uh, you know. That's an experience that he will then bring back to the community. And this is called getting out and experiencing other cultures, which makes you a more sympathetic person to everyone. Because go over to Europe. Don't don't go to England or Ireland, okay? Throw yourself in the fire, man. Go to like the Czech Republic or something. Go to Prague. Uh, You're lucky though. Europeans speak pretty good English. And then go to like... Italy. Yeah, definitely France. There's parts that go deep in France, man. They don't, they won't speak any English to you. So, uh, you know, experience what it's like to be someone that's not from that land and and looks at all the beauty of that land that you want to be a part of and that you love and you take that back and, and make that here. So, uh, that's that. And then basically, Beyond those kind of deals, everything has to be spent, all groceries, anything that you buy in the community, which would encourage you to continue to buy in the community, to keep it in the community. Now, this is a geofenced currency, so it will monitor your purchases to ensure because it's basically on this distributed ledger that can be seen by certain parties privy to access of that information. And again, you know, this is part of that you own it network. And then the other $100,000, remember there was $200,000. The other $100,000, originally in my idea, which I called the digitarium, kind of a hokey name when I think about it now. The other $100,000 in my original idea was split between uh, general maintenance of the city and the homeless crisis, which was balled up with mental illness, uh, basically people on the street. And uh, those those 50,000 homeless and street repair, uh, by the way, are controlled by all the 100,000 people, including Jimmy. So they all actually say, you know what? We agree. We want that pothole. Jimmy has the I guess Jimmy, this is new actually. I just thought of this. Jimmy would, in his block radius, can have the the pick. He can take the uh, twenty five thousand of the fifty, and put it into a road repair in his neighborhood. That's pretty cool. And then other people can decide where it goes to be fixed. Right? We're not going to wait for whatever the fuck is going on in the city. We're going to be like, yeah, let's definitely repair that. And then also, you know, a select. A group of representatives, uh, or it's as easy as voting on it if you'd like. You have the ability to just say yes or no to everything so that there is a unanimous vote. It's 51%. And uh, you can see who gets the contract. You can actually bid out the workers because those could be your neighbors who need to work. 
So all of this stuff is possible. All of it. And by the way, when I said detached from the government without any government interference, this has nothing to do with the government. If the government saw us fixing our own streets with our own workers and doing it legally and obviously running it through the city and we're just paying for it, do you think they're going to come out and say you can't fucking do that? Let's take the bull by the horns. Let's grow our communities. Let's value our communities. Let's value each other. We can do it. We can really do it this time with focus, calculation, and build and build and build and persevere and persevere and persevere like a protest in your head. Get them where it hurts. Get it to where you don't have to pay attention to what the fuck they're doing because you're just handling it yourself. And by the way, when I talk about things like the uh, social network that's owned by the users, uh, when we're talking about the social network uh, owned by the users, oh, by the way, I mean, when I talk about the social network owned by the users, you do know that a state can be created, right? Because what is a state? What is a country? What is a region other than people that are inhabiting it with their opinions and their lives? If your opinions and your lives are online, you are on your own social network, you are basically growing your own state or your own country, depending on how big it is. And you're rewriting the rules because the point is, is that digital is reality now. And once you start looking at that as wood and coal and steel and a commodity and treating it like that, I mean, if you lived on a piece of land and somebody was just taking oil out of it and just like waving at you and you're like, bye, I'm glad you got all that pesky oil out of the ground. I mean, come on. And then you found out one day he was making millions and millions and billions of dollars. You would lose your fucking mind. So do it. This is totally possible. I don't know how. <laughs> no, I do. It's with steps. And uh, we got to have a, a coordination. So, um, and I guess that definitely has to start by me because they're my ideas. But um, I'm totally open. This should be an open thing. I don't plan on owning this, these ideas as an owner. I want this to be uh, group owned. This is how you do it. I was going to work on solving the homeless problem before the pandemic hit. Now that just seems almost impossible because there's money that's needed for the, the house. So as you're building the digital state, okay, you're, you're becoming the third party. So today, my interview guest is Philip Shoemaker, executive director of Identity.com. Philip is a hands-on leader with over 20 years of experience in the mobile space. Philip helped build the Apple App Store, including building the review operations team to over 300 people, writing the guidelines with Steve Jobs, and testifying with global government authorities. 
Most recently, Philip has been advising and investing in startups, focusing on blockchain, iOS apps, and augmented reality. He is passionate about giving back through technology, and that's why I love Philip, and I'm so happy to have him on my first podcast. Welcome, Philip, and thank you so much for your time. You're, you're welcome, Josh. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. It's great, great to hear your voice again, man. Thank you. Um, can you... Um, so in, my, in this podcast, uh, you haven't heard it yet, but I've touched on um, three ideas that I think could really be uh, bringing some solid solution and change uh, to the environment that we all live in today. Uh, number one is a social network owned by the users, which we have discussed in the past. <laughs> Number two is basically holding the billionaires hostage with the pro sports teams and making them give those teams to the city so so the inhabitants of those cities can share the wealth. And number three, uh, something that's dear to my heart that I met you through actually when you uh, become an advisor so generously to my cracked out ideas. You 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 saw a vision and some passion. You said this guy needs some help, and uh, and I'm so appreciative. Um, and that is a uh, a uh, socio-economic support system for local communities that tethers a currency to a uh, cryptocurrency to allow for local spending to keep the wealth uh, in the community. So. Uh, you are heading. You're you're the the tip of the spear, so to say, in the uh, identification space that resides on a blockchain. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about Identity.com and its association with Civic that leverages the Civic token for its network? Absolutely, Josh. I, uh, you know, a, a little bit about my history, as you said. You know, the the App Store piece. I just want to give a little background here is, is you know, when, when I left Apple in, in 2016 and, and this is after, you know, I've already had successful investments in 2026 and, and BitGo. I was very happy with, with those uh, early investments in the, in the Bitcoin blockchain space. I, uh, I, I left Apple with, with one thing on my mind and that was crypto and blockchain, right? That was what I really wanted to get into, but I couldn't really stick my teeth into just another currency. I, that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And, uh, and, and I thought back after discussing with my wife as well about the big pains that we had at Apple. And, and a lot of it had to do with identifying who people were, right? The old uh, New Yorker cartoon, it shows a dog sitting at a computer and says, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. I mean, it's true, right? On the internet, we just don't know who you are, right? I, uh, uh, it, it, it's, been a, it's been an age-old problem. And at Apple, vetting developers was as simple as as getting an email address and having them pay the $99 fee. That's pretty much it. <laughs> the rest of it, they could make anything up, right? And, right? and they did. They did, right? So we would we would get terminated developer. They'd resurface in a matter of minutes under a different name. And it was just a constant game of whack-a-mole. So leaving Apple, it dawned on me that I needed to get involved in, in, in identity, right? Some sort of identification. Yeah. And, uh, and while I was in Cabarete in Dominican Republic, I heard about this company, Civic, that was doing an ICO, and we started digging into it and, uh, and ultimately met Vinny Lingham from Civic, and he said, you know what you should do? You should head up identity. And, uh, and that's where the conversation started. And, uh, and I joined identity.com. I joined Civic essentially to pull identity.com out of Civic. And this is all the open source. This is the, the, the concept of creating an ecosystem where a lot of providers can play and ultimately get, uh, 
uh, drive help drive the costs of KYC, the know your customer piece where they do actual document or credential verification, looking at driver's licenses and then um, uh, approving them. And I can go into that process in a second, but it, it was all about creating an ecosystem, a marketplace, if you will. And, you know, that's what I did at Apple. We created the app store. And for me, creating a marketplace where people can compete on merit and people that provide the best uh, validation of IDs at the lowest cost are going to win. And to me, this is how you get digital identification in people's hands at a very low cost. And having digital IDs in people's hands not only helps uh, stave off things like human trafficking, it also opens up new opportunities. Like imagine if, uh, if Juul and these other uh, uh, smokeless, these, these vape systems uh, were key, keyed to an ID and you could not get high, <laughs> not high, you could not smoke it if you, uh, if you weren't of age. And it, it just, you know, it, it, uh, I call it identity-associated hardware. And that's, those are kind of things that come along with this. And uh, so I got hooked. Identity to me is one of the most important things we need to solve on the internet. There's a lot of good companies out there, good, good minds working on it. But, uh, but nobody's really doing a marketplace, some place that will help us drive adoption while uh, reducing costs. My and that's kind of what we're doing. My goodness, uh, identity uh, technology hardware? Or, uh, yes. Uh, that would be, imagine that with firearms. Absolutely. Imagine that, I, you know, that, I think that's a great idea. I didn't think about firearms. To me, the two big ones I was thinking about, knowing where my head was, right, are, are vaping technologies because, look, the, the, the ridiculous fact is that, that uh, you can still shoulder tap someone to get a pack of cigarettes at the 7-Eleven, which is what kids used to do when I was a child. And even though it's new hardware, I mean, this is new technology. These, these vape systems, these other things, they're high tech. So why aren't they leveraging an identity solution? Instead, the tobacco industry just did what it continually does, and they just pushed it out there hoping that people are going to buy it. And, uh, and then they're like, oh, we didn't see that happening, right? You make a cotton candy vape pen, uh, I guarantee you kids are going to be smoking it, right? <laughs> so, but, uh, but that was the first one. The second one was crypto hardware. Imagine a crypto wallet that was key to your ID. You couldn't open it without doing a biometric, and that's also tied to your, to your driver's license, et cetera. I mean, this is killer kind of stuff. A firearm, that's even better. Because then you have multiple attestations. So, so the way we work, right, we don't, we're not storing your personally identifiable information or PII on the blockchain. Instead, that's stored on your phone, and you control who, who, who you, whom you disclose it to. But imagine if other things were there, not just your driver's license, but your conceal and carry permit or your, 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 uh, your gun license at all. You know, you could have all this stored on the blockchain, well, stored an attestation on the blockchain, stored on your phone, and that's the only way your phone, your your gun will work. Right? It's, it's key to your to you. It's key to your identity. It can, it goes with it. If somebody finds that gun, you know who owns it. It's it's amazing, really. and you know the, the the digital realm now more than ever is so much a part of everyone's reality, if not the biggest part ironically, of most people's reality with me, people making their entire livings online and their entire social network online. So it's so needed, so needed uh, to verify a real person. Um, and when I discuss things like the social network owned by uh, its users, of course, this could be corrupted by bots. 
who then overtake the network, who overtake a 51, 50% uh, voting rights. And so the way to combat that would be a blockchain identification system. And uh, I've read in the past that certain uh, ID um, verification systems like identity.com and Civic, uh, you would onboard, now correct me if I'm wrong, but when you get to know your customer, KYC, know your customer, as they uh, say in uh, the tech industry, uh, do you onboard them as a, a life person? I mean, is it, once that process begins to so-called tokenize your identity, is that a, a system that needs to be used as you, as an individual in the space saying, this is me, here's my ID, here I am, and then it all goes to the digital realm? Or how do you onboard? Well, the way... the there's multiple ways to onboard, right? So we have customers that, uh, that leverage technologies like FaceTech and Zoom to be able to do liveness testing of your, of your face. It takes a snapshot of your face and compares it to the driver's license. So onboarding a customer through KYC is relatively straightforward. In a couple of minutes, you can do that. In fact, when we were at South by Southwest demonstrating an alcohol vending machine, that's another interesting business opportunity that this opens is you can do alcohol vending. Um, when we were doing that, people waited in line just to onboard and be able to get a free beer from the vending machine, right? <laughs> and they, that means they go up there, they scan a QR code, it verifies that they are who, who, who KYC'd earlier, and it spit, spit out a beer. And, uh, and so once you have that ID in place and you go to the next place that wants to, to, uh, to KYC you and you already have a, an identity, either through identity or civic, you can scan the QR code, and you know what happens? That company doesn't get billed for doing another KYC. In fact, they just reuse that existing digital ID, and then the company that did the original KYC on that gets a few pennies, right? They make a uh, uh, they, they make additional revenue, and it's ongoing revenue for life. And so, yeah, you you basically get onboarded through that, and you carry this with you for uh, for life. So this is almost like a, a more secure way because people, if, if, if uh, listeners out there, if you want to try to understand that, what he just mentioned, it's, it's kind of like signing in with Gmail or signing in with Facebook, right? You, they've onboarded you and, and basically verified who you are through their organization. And now you can have that translate across different sectors of the internet and the digital space. Uh, but with the blockchain, it's even, uh, it's even a more secure, more you verifiable is is that is that correct or am i yeah i, I would say that's correct you, you know but, but but the one fallacy here is that when a facebook or an apple onboard you they don't even ask for your driver's license they don't really know who you are right they, they for, for apple in general they just want to know your credit card is good and facebook they just want to know you want to come on their platform they don't know if you have a pulse they don't know anything about you. <laughs> so so th this is one of the big bad, this is one of the bad models of investing in, in companies that a lot of us got sucked into is we want big numbers and we don't care if they're accurate or not. And right. to me, that's that's painful, right? Because look, look what happened with Facebook, right? Facebook has had really good, a, a real good promise, right? I, I believe what Zuckerberg originally wanted to do. But look, I think this became an unwieldy beast. And Cambridge Analytica uh, uh, exposed it, and uh, uh, and other things came out of that as well. I don't need to get into politics, but that that to me was a was a painful lesson that we learned. And uh, and look, nobody cares anymore. I guarantee you, since Facebook allows developers to get access to your information, um, they don't even vet their developers. In fact, 
They can use a library card to get into the Facebook developer program, a library <laughs> card. I can make one right now that I bet you would get me in Facebook. So that's the problem. And, and so rather, Cambridge Analytica doesn't exist, but there's probably, to me, it's, it's more decentralized now. There's thousands of developers feeding data into a database, much like Cambridge Analytica, I bet. Yeah. And so, yeah, they still do exist. They're just faceless and nameless now. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's uh, the the uh, willful um, ignorance and, and looking the other way of these big platforms is, is obviously uh, fragmenting and being torn apart before our eyes in real time. And, and yeah, like guys like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, they're holding on. Uh, I was really happy to see Twitter finally hold certain people accountable. Um, that was great to see. I would personally, everybody listening out there, you know, let's just ban Twitter until they kick them off. That's just a thought. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't tweet until you, I I hear you. I I'm right there with you, but, but Hey, I want, I want to go back to your, to your, your idea about the social network that's owned by the people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, some people will think, look, I don't want to be a social network where I have to insert my driver's license. And then everybody knows who I am. I want to be, I want to be under a pseudonym, right? This is not saying you can't have pseudonymity, right? You can't have anonymity. What it means is that if you start posting some vile crap, the company that does this, they know who you are and they can either uh, block you for life because, or block, you know, at at Apple, we blocked developers for a year. You could do something like that. You could go out, slap their wrist, whatever you need to do, but at least there's some accountability. And that's something we don't get with any social network right now is accountability. Right. You know, when I when I started to um, get creative about identification on a blockchain space, and I think I had mentioned or discussed it with you at some point, but I envisioned it in a in my utopian universe I was creating of much like a, a house, right? Like um, you've got a, a public address that anybody can look up. And they can drive down your street and they can see you as the facade of your house. And and that could be your anonymity through a blockchain ID. And it's up to you in the house to open the door and let people in, right? So there's different kinds of laws that allow entry. And there is the the ultimate entry is a forced entry from a warrant or a police organization or something like that. Uh, And then they can have access without you controlling that access. But it's almost like you could open up different rooms and allow people to see things. Like, are you just visiting them on your porch with the door open? Are you allowing them in the foyer? Are you allowing them in your living room? Uh, Is is that something that a blockchain, because you were talking about it being able Able to store uh, a gun ownership license, uh, your military ID, your your library card, so that you can fool Facebook into allowing you them to you to be a developer. No. Um, but uh, these different types of uh, of IDs, kind of in your house, and then behind a, an anonymous or a, 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 like an avatar handle or something. Does that sound right? Or is that how are you guys? How are you guys doing? Give us a give us a, an update on identity.com. You, you had recently uh, sent me an email uh, to get on a waiting list. Can you describe that process and what that is involving in identity.com at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. You know, identity.com is a is a service that any uh, any application, any developer, any service can ultimately use to to handle the um, KYC to get to know who their customers are. And uh, and in some cases, like a, a cryptocurrency wallet, it's essentially required nowadays, right? There's this this financial action task force has this 
concept of, uh, of the travel rule, which means they have to know who's sending money around uh, in the world, right, through cryptocurrency. So a lot of wallets are going to be needing something like this. And uh, the, the waiting list I, I sent you was for the civic.com wallet. Uh, civic, uh, the civic wallet is, uh, uses the KYC uh, from identity.com. And, uh, uh, and uh, that, that's how they onboard customers is through that. It's also a great mechanism to be able to, let's say you delete, you destroy your phone, you lose your phone, whatever. When you want to get a backup, you do so with your ID, right? You don't have to, don't have to go find a, a special key or anything like that. You can ultimately just come back and, uh, and onboard with your ID and, and, and get your wallet credentials back, right? It's a, it's a, it's a powerful way of, of doing things because of these reusable ideas. And, uh, and, you know, we, we don't actually store anything in the blockchain other than an attestation, an attestation that tells me this is valid, right? Mm-hmm. And well, one of our, uh, one of the validation partners, let's say on Fido, on Fido has asserted that Philip Shoemaker is Philip Shoemaker. And that is, uh, uh, that's a powerful thing, right? It's a powerful thing. As, as we know, you know, I, I do get worried about quantum computing and ultimately breaking some of the encryption on blockchains. And that's why you don't put PII there, but, uh, what, but there's a lot just, of other what, things. What is uh, PII for the listeners? Oh, that's the, yes, that's the personally identifiable information. So your driver's license number, your, uh, your photo, your age, your weight, all of that stuff is, uh, is stuff that uh, uh, GDPR, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the German and uh, the EU uh, data protection as well as the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, right. these guys require that uh, that consumers get to know what's being stored about them on, on various websites and uh, and have the ability to remove them over time if they want to. And that's what's great about the way decentralized ID works is there's no honeypot, there's no there's no Equifax hacks that can get all this information. If you want to hack me, you have to get my phone, right? You have to physically get my phone. And then you have to break into that phone and then you have to decrypt it. I mean, come on, that's a lot of work to get one person's phone. It's not impossible. Uh, it's just really, really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. And now bringing this uh, <clears throat> into the current moment of this uh, crazy pandemic that we're yeah. all experiencing, uh, on your um, on identity.com, uh, you do a, a regular, semi-regular blogging, and uh, you had a blog post from June 1st, 2020. Uh, you stated, we may need proof of health to go back to a physical office. From my vantage point in the identity industry, I've seen quite a bit of momentum behind immunization certificates. Done thoughtfully with input from privacy advocates, a digital certificate could be used to provide safe entry to work. With a human rights-centered solution, we can give people more control over their privacy. And in an era where we've had to protect ourselves physically from others, proof of vaccination will go a long way in reestablishing trust within the workplace. Um, this is so crucial. Uh, not only, you know, I, one of my favorite quotes in blockchain is, uh, you know, you don't, it's not that you don't trust who you're doing business with. It's that you don't have to trust who you're doing business right. with. And it's so important for pe- for people to trust people about whether or not they've been in contact with COVID-19 or people that have been in contact. And, and so this is just perfect uh, to remedy this situation and, and bring us uh, into the future um, currently uh, with this process. I mean, you know, people 
aren't going to tell you, you know, that they got drunk last night and kissed some girl at a bar, uh, and, and, but they'll say, oh, I haven't seen anybody, you know. I, I don't know exactly uh, how everything will work um, in this scenario, but uh, are, you, are you guys... Um, are you working on something like that? Are you involved with someone who is involved with that? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a great, it, it's an interesting use of the technology, right? Because, um, because we have this ability with identity.com to attest to just about anything, right? What, what, what we are is this attestation certification platform, whatever you want to call it. Um, it it's all focused on IDs right now, but it could easily be an immunization, uh, proof, proof of vaccine, Proof of health, if you, if you want to call it that. There, you know, when, when we started looking at this uh, uh, months ago, when, when COVID and coronavirus, et cetera, um, um, hit hard, we, uh, we started looking into figuring out how, if once we're shutting everything down, how do we reopen? Right? I, uh, I do talk to a lot of, uh, of uh, casino owners in Vegas and in upstate New York about, about what they're going to do, how they're going to open. Now, these companies... Were decimated, right? I mean, they furloughed, et cetera, but they, they're still big money, right? They're casinos, but uh, but most of these guys don't even have online presences, uh, especially like upstate New York, have online gambling there, and so these guys were hit hard, and I, and I wanted to help them. They're good people, strong, hard, hard workers, and they employ a lot of people. So how do we get them back to work? How do you get some of the trust going back in? Now, in Macau. They open in 15 days. Wow. From the beginning of this to within 15 days of, uh, of the end of their, their hotspot in China. That's ridiculous. And um, the types of things they employed were temperature readings, making sure everybody wore masks, and literally uh, disinfecting every chip after it's handled by a person. I mean, they, they, they go to such extreme lengths. But look, we're... A litigious nation, right? So mm -hmm. these casinos are probably scared to death that if they become the next hotspot, that there's liability there. Mm -hmm. Imagine you go to one of these hotels and you and all your friends, uh, they come back with coronavirus and, and, uh, and you infect yourself, you infect other people. Like it's going to be a, it's going to be a problem. So I, I wanted to figure out how can we help these folks out? And get people back to work. Let's get this economic engine running again. How do we make that happen? And so the first thing you think about is, okay, temperature checks. Um, I, you know, I'm just looking at it from, from, from a perspective of how do we get the economic engine going in? I wasn't thinking about identity. I was thinking about what do we need to do? Well, there's temperature checks. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. So many false positives, so many false negatives. People tend to be asymptomatic. Some people don't even get fevers when they have coronavirus and they knowingly have it. And it's infectious. I mean, just this is a weird, weird bug, right? So a weird virus that's happening. So, so what do we do? Okay, temperature checks doesn't work. Well, let's do contact tracing. That's Apple and, and Google are all on that. A lot of companies are on that. But what does that do, right? That tells, if, if you look at the Google and the, and the Apple model, first of all, it's a privacy nightmare in most cases. The way Apple and Google are doing it is, is, is doesn't seem to, to be that bad because they're not constantly tracking your location. Uh, they're passing around these Bluetooth IDs, et cetera. And if one of these IDs gets registered, that ultimately adds somebody that later attests to having COVID, then you can backtrace their, their, uh, uh, where they may have gotten it from and who they may have been infected along the way. Really brilliant. But guess what? You have to download an app. Everybody has to download an app and turn this on and let it access your, your, 
your your Wi-Fi, or, I mean your uh, your GPS, and and that. So, contact tracing is not about determining if you have COVID. It's about determining the hotspots where it came from. It's about tracing the herd, right? I, I like to look at it as we're always talking about looking. You know, you, we're we're uh, uh, we're looking at the forest instead of the trees. In this case, that's exactly what's happening. We're not looking at trees. We're looking at the forest. And we want to know where the forest is dying, where it's having problems, et cetera. But when it comes right down to it, looking at the forest isn't a good way of determining, is that tree over there healthy? To do that, you have to look directly at that tree. And that, to me, is something like an antibody test or a uh, a vaccine, right? Now, vaccines, what are we, 12 months off? If we're lucky. (laughs) Who knows, right? So vaccines scare me, so proof of antibodies. But now... The science is out on on uh, having an antibody. Does that mean I will be immune for COVID for six months, for twelve months, for eighteen months, or never, or or not at all? Right? And people disagree on the issues here. So it seems like the only thing to do is something like a vaccine. I think that's the right thing to do. And once you have proof of vaccine, what are you going to do? Carry around a piece of paper that can be easily forged? Uh, probably not. Instead, what you want is you want these systems. You want when you go in to get that vaccine. That they also you scan a QR code and an attestation is just made from that doctor's office, just simply onto the blockchain, and it sends a certificate down to your phone. And next time you want to go to Walt Disney World or you want to walk into a casino, you scan a QR code that pops up on the on the uh, doorman's uh, uh, phone, shows a picture of you, and has a thumbs up or a thumbs down. That's all it needs. It doesn't need to know your name. Doesn't need to know anything about you. This is all disclosure, right? You scan that. It says, hey. The MGM wants to know if, if you have COVID. And you say, yes, send them that information. It pops back and it, it tells them that uh, that this certain place uh, attested to you having a COVID vaccine or whatever. And uh, and you and you get let in. It's very similar to the, the bar analogy for IDs, right? My, uh, uh, my, my daughter, when she's 18 and she goes to a club or something, rather than showing an ID to uh, the doorman, she just scans a QR code. It says, shows a picture of her and says thumbs up. She can go in or it says thumbs down. This is all we really need to get the thing moving again, right? We need a way to determine if somebody's uh, uh, healthy or not. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, you know, um, so there's a couple of things, right? So, you know, the uh, privacy people, which I definitely am one, uh, but now I'm giving in more and more to the fact that, you know what, all my information is out there, whether I know it or not, and whether it has my name on it, my metadata is out there. Google has it; they all have it. It's just being alive with the with a smartphone, basically. Um, But you know, I I think what I would like the uh, listeners to understand too is that you know they might think, well, can't you forge? you know, the internet or, or, you know, uh, so I want them to understand that basically the power of a distributed ledger technology or a blockchain technology is that this is, uh, like super notary on acid. It's like, boom, it's, it's immutable, unerasable information. It's one ledger. It's not two ledgers. It's not two or three books where everybody's doing their own accounting, right? It's, it's, on this, it's there. It's not going away. It's completely verifiable. It's unchangeable. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would say that. And even even further is that. And there's many copies of this exact thing, right, distributed across the world. So if one of these, if somebody attacks one of these implement, one of these these uh, chains that somebody's running uh, on on, uh, uh, let's say they attack the blockchain. Um, I'm sorry, the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, they attack it. 
they can't attack it in 10,000 places at once. And right. that's the only way that these, these things work together. I mean, Satoshi, when he designed this, was brilliant, right? You design, you make it so there's not one central source of truth per se. It's distributed central source of truth. Therefore, it's, it's impossible to hack. That's amazing. Okay, um, a couple of things uh, before we wind down here. Um, one, um, how, what should people do if they want to get on this waiting list for identity.com? Well, the waiting list specifically is for Civic Wallet. Okay. If, if people, and they can just go to civic.com and be able to apply for that wallet uh, or to, uh, to, to get on the waiting list. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're putting it through its paces. This is something that ultimately handles payment. And uh, when you're dealing with people's money, you want to be super sure that, that you got everything nailed down, every problem. And so, uh, so they're rolling out slowly. And so, yeah, get, go up there and get, get on the waiting list. But if you're a company that wants to, uh, uh, to, to integrate KYC, integrate the KYC effort, you can just send an email uh, uh, or go to identity.com or send me an email at philip.identity.org. And, uh, and we'll be happy to, uh, to discuss it with you. That's awesome. And, and if you, if, uh, by the way, it's civic, just like it sounds, C-I-V-I-C, civic.com. Um, amazing. And then uh, just to wind it down, uh, two questions, because uh, I, I just think it's amazing. I mean, your, your history and technology, working with the great Steve Jobs directly at Apple, um, just give us two things. Uh, what's, what's one thing you absolutely loved about Steve Jobs, <laughs> you know, Steve was Steve was a difficult person, um, and uh, and look, he uh, his approach to uh, to to design, right? his approach to design of anything, whether it's a user interface, product in general, the industrial design, his approach was 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 one that I had seen before when I was at Palm from Jeff Jeff Hawkins, uh, an, another person that thought in similar ways. A lot of companies design things by committee. Everybody contributes their thoughts, et cetera. They listen a lot to the customer. Steve Jobs had a great line. He says, the customer doesn't know what they want until you show it to them. (laughs) And that's kind of what Steve had this singular focus on creating the best product he could. And, uh, and, you know, he was also a a, a bit PT Barnum, right? He was a a marketing guy. And so he knew really how to craft the product for, for the masses. And he did a, incredible job and that was one of the best things about working with him is that he was singularly singularly focused on as he would say you know put a dent in the universe he wanted to leave a lasting impact and i i swear he did so it, you know he's kind of like the michael jordan of technology um and, and and that being said what's the one thing you hated about steve jobs <laughs> Look, i wouldn't say i hated anything about him but uh he you know he was um, he, he, he could be a jerk at times, right? I mean, you know, when he called me, when my team, I was at the company for about, I think three weeks when, uh, the team made a big mistake and, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it affected our, affected our stock price. Wow. So I'm at the company three weeks. My team made a, approved an app that shouldn't have been approved. And so it was about shaking babies. It was just, it's, it's not something I like talking about. <laughs> and, and to be honest, it made our stock price go down, even though our announcement that day, it's the same day as one of our big announcements, an amazing number of downloads, record revenue, et cetera. Our stock goes down because of this one app. 
And he called me up and said, you're stupid. You hire stupid people and you hung up the phone. And so for me, <laughs> having, having, it wasn't a prank call. He knew exactly who he was calling. But, uh, but having that kind of uh, leadership is, is painful at times. And, you know, I, um, I was from, you know, I'm a, you don't swear in the office. I was, I was not uh, somebody that would ever swear in the office. I get to Apple, all the executives, I, I mean, they're, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of cursing in the office. And to me, it was just, wow, it was a different level because, and I worked with a lot of, you know, I was at seven startups before Apple, before I joined Apple, I was at big companies like Sun Microsystems. I've been in board meetings at Real Networks. I've never seen that kind of uh, behavior before. And it got very personal at times, right? When, uh, when you get, ta- when you get uh, uh, spoken to by the executives at Apple, they pull no punches and they'll even insult your kids. And you're saying, why, why, am, why am I putting up with this? But, uh, but that was all from the leadership, right? Steve was very much that way as well. So uh, the listeners, uh, if, you, if you are aware of this baby shaking app, uh, if you shake the phone too much, the baby basically dies. Um, yeah. you, know, you got another call from someone during that escapade. You want to tell us about who called you? Oh yeah, that, that was that was awesome. When uh, when I see the phone, it's the first time ever, first and only time this ever happened. To me, but you know, the the ID said it was Al Gore's office, and uh, you know, I, and of course you're looking at it and you're like the ex vice president. Why is he calling me? Is it the same guy? And and sure enough, you know, at the time he was on Apple's board, and he wanted to know what was uh, what what did my team even do if 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 we let this happen? What were we looking for? And uh, and he wanted me to meet with one of his special advisors, uh, who uh, who came over and we chatted at length about uh, uh, about the app review process and and what we went through. In fact, he didn't come over. I met him at Thirsty Bear in San Francisco, and uh, now we're good friends. So it's it's just one of those interesting things. And another one. one of the, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I was just saying it's just one app. That one app caused, uh, caused a lot of chaos. Well, and this is goes back to the route that you were describing earlier in the conversation. This KYC, know your customer. How can you ha- make that killer app to know that that person is a real person, not duplicated, um, uh, flesh and bone, pulse? And that has led you to identity, identity.com. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, everyone listening, y- y- you can actually sleep at night. I know it's hard to these days with a lot of other factors, but knowing that my boy Philip Shoemaker's on this, we can all go to sleep at night a little bit easier, knowing that the solution comes up with the sun in the morning. So I, I just, uh, you're awesome. Your work is awesome. And I thank you so much for your time, Philip. Uh, I would love to have you on maybe sometime later when you, uh, by the way, everyone, Philip was so generous to do this. This is my first episode. And, uh, so I'm hoping that he, um, is uh, uh, liking the format, and uh, I hope that it's an ongoing format and it gains a lot of traction and a lot of listeners. And I'd love to have you back at some point because I'm going to keep the blockchain thread going because that is that's power to the people right there. So, Josh, I, I, I absolutely appreciate being your 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 first uh, on your first podcast, and and you know I've always enjoyed talking blockchain with you. You've uh, you've always had some far fetched ideas, but also some really kind of groundbreaking one. So let's, uh, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. Thanks, man. Thank you, Philip. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Cheers. And that concludes episode one of Third Party Radio. I'm your host, Josh Gorell. I'm also the producer, editor, and audio recorder.
so please uh, forgive if uh, the recording quality and the mix was not up to standards. I promise it'll get better. Please visit the website at thirdpartyradio.com. That's 3rdpartyradio.com. You can also send me an email at josh at thirdpartyradio.com. Hope to hear you listening next time.